Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. since we've been active on the subject of black involvement in Labour politics than I've ever seen before. And you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour council, a Labour council hiring taxis to scale around... People don't know what the Labour Party is about at all. A new dawn has broken, has it not? If anyone says that politics can't make a difference, then look at what we have achieved together. People feel that change is coming. Ed Miliband has a dream. He wants to revive Labour as a mass membership party. I want to use your talents, whoever you supported. Ed Miliband has stepped down as Labour Party leader. The announcement comes after a devastating night for the party. Jeremy Corbyn, 251... Come with us on that journey. The Labour Party is too broad a church at the moment. You'll be inspired. There are people who disagree with me for reasons that they say are to do, say, with Iraq. You'll be occupied. But actually are to do with the fact that I won three elections to the Labour Party and they didn't like it. But above all, you'll be part of it. Hello and welcome to the Beginner's Guide to the Labour Party. Uh, my name is Holly Rigby. I'm a relatively new member of the Labour Party. I joined in September 2015 after Jeremy Corbyn was elected and I'm definitely a beginner at all of this. Um, so if you are too and want to find out more about the Labour Party, keep listening. To help me understand how all of this works, each month I'll be putting my questions to a panel of experts. We'll be going in depth to understand the inner workings and history of the Labour Party and I'll be challenging my guests to break down the jargon. I'm here with a regular guest as well, Jeremy Gilbert. Do you want to introduce yourself, Jeremy? Uh, hi, I'm Jeremy Gilbert. Uh, I'm an academic based at the University of East London and I'm active in the Labour Party in various ways uh, and with connections to both Momentum and Compass, two different organisations. 
Great. So in this episode, uh, we're talking about the history of the different factions in the Labour Party. We're currently in the middle of a Labour leadership contest and these factions seem to really come out in the open. Um, and I think lots of new members like myself will be wondering where did they come from? What do they believe? And which ones are at play in the contest between Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith? So this month we're joined by special guests Ellie May O'Hagan and Luke Akehurst. And I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. Um, I'm Ellie May O'Hagan. I, uh, I guess I used to work for the unions for a very long time, Unite, which is Labour's biggest donor. So I have that connection to the Labour Party. But at the moment, I'm mainly known for being a journalist, writing mainly for The Guardian. And I write a lot about the Labour Party. You might say exclusively about the <laughs> Labour Party at the moment. Yeah, I'm Luke Akehurst. I've been active in the Labour Party since I was 16, which is 28 years, which is feels like far too long. Um, I'm the secretary of a group called Labour First, which I'm sure I'll be asked to explain a bit about later on. Former councillor in Hackney for 12 years, uh, parliamentary candidate a couple of times, been on the Labour Party national executive, and I write a column for Labour List, which is, is exclusively about inner workings of the Labour Party, really. Great. So this episode is all about the factions in the Labour Party. Um, but before we start, um, what do we mean by factions? Jeremy, do you think you can define it for us? Yeah, well, a faction is a grouping within an organisation or a movement which has a particular political agenda, which is distinctive from those of others within the same organisation or movement. Um, they can be more or less organisationally coherent. So it's possible to talk about a faction as a kind of loose network of affiliates or it's possible to talk about a faction as an actually, you know, organised grouping. Uh, but broadly speaking, that's what it means. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing I was going to say is that historically, the Labour Party, whilst it's had kind of factions and currents, they've been a lot less strong than in other social democratic and democratic socialist parties that if you... Uh, went to Australia, for instance, you can't actually join without taking out a card that says you're a member of a state faction, so the Victoria State Left or the New South Wales Right. Um, everyone is, is, is in one. Um, and um, similarly in France, they actually kind of measure the number of people on the party executive by the strength of the factions at the, at the, at the party conference. It's a lot less formal than that historically in the Labour Party. And my, my guess is that about 98%, and until very recently, about 98% of Labour Party members would not have been on the mailing lists of any factional organisation. It was like a minority pastime for people that were very, very active. I think that's still true, probably. You know, that, that proportion is probably still about right. I don't think momentum have got enough, a big enough proportion for that to be wrong. So when we're talking about factions in the Labour Party, we're talking not necessarily about um, organised groups of people. We're talking about people who share a coalition of ideas as opposed to an yeah, organised so, group. So, so there are, so there are a broad kind of traditions in the party, uh, which some people would feel a, a, an affiliation to the kind of history of them and some wouldn't. And then within those, there's probably smaller groups of people that are very interested in organisation and in the nuts and bolts of how the party works that actually kind of get involved in in organising this stuff. But there's loads of people that, you know, there are loads of MPs or councillors that manage their entire time in the Labour Party without ever feeling that they particularly want a badge put on them. I mean, I had a conversation with Ed Miliband when he was leader. He said, it, I, I, I resent the idea that I have to choose between left or right of the party. I don't feel connected to either of them. 
Okay, so I think maybe once we start talking about the different factions, it might become more obvious um, how they work within the Labour Party. Um, so could you explain what are the different main factions in the Labour Party and how have they emerged? Okay, so so I think and I, uh, uh, um, that there are probably four broad traditions in, 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 in that you could identify in the Labour Party. So um, from the right to the left, you would have... Um, a kind of Blairite or New Labour tradition, which the organisation Progress would be the main organisational um, aspect of. And um, the bizarre thing is that didn't actually come out the historic right of the Labour Party. Um, a lot of how New Labour and the Blairites emerged was actually a, an ideological journey that people in the 1980s had thought of themselves as on the soft left, went on a kind of journey and ended up in a different place. Then... Um, by some criteria to, to the left of that, but by others not, um, is a grouping that you could kind of call the traditional old right, which maybe someone like Tom Watson would fit into. Uh, certainly Michael Duggar uh, uh, of, uh, of MPs would, would fit easily into that uh, tradition, which is kind of looks back to the, the, the right wing of the party or the moderate wing of the party that existed before Tony Blair. Uh, the Dennis Healy or Roy Hattersley type tradition. Then you've got a group uh, with um, who, whose boundaries can kind of vary on the both the left and the right flanks that you could call uh, the soft left, uh, which Compass used to be the main organisational hub of, and now there's a group called Open Labour, but um, uh, I'm not sure in, in group terms it's that strong, but probably it's where a very large slice of... Labour MPs and councillors feel they belong. So that kind of came out of the the Tribune group of MPs and, and Nye Bevan's left wing in, in, in the 50s uh, and through Michael Foote and Neil Kinnock and people like that. And then um, on, on the left, you've got what nowadays people say uh, Corbynites or Momentum or whatever, uh, sometimes called the hard left to differentiate them from, from the soft left. That wasn't intended to be a pejorative term. It was just the way things were described uh, back in the 80s, who uh, would be the, the kind of less compromising left, who now, to their surprise, find themselves kind of in the driving seat of the party when historically, or at least for the last 30 years, they'd been kind of at, at the margins. Okay, so um, that gives a sense of the, the spectrum, I suppose. Um, and I think it'd be useful for uh, listeners to know where you all come from within that spectrum, knowing what the factions are. Um, so, um, Ellie, can you start with which, which of those factions would you say you're part of and why? Um, I would say that I'm uh, part of the left faction, although the funny thing is there's actually factions within the left as well. Um, so, for example, you've got an MP like Ian Lavery, who would I, I would also say is on the left. But he is sort of distinct from someone like Jeremy Corbyn, like Ian Labury and Jeremy Corbyn didn't have much of a relationship that I know of. Maybe I don't know whether you want to correct me on that, Luke. But, but they are two people that I would say are both on the left of the party. So um, so I would say that I'm on the left because um, I believe in things like uh, state ownership of public services. Um, I'm opposed to Trident renewal. Um, I oppose the war in Iraq. Um I guess, you know, those are the, I'm interested in sort of social equality, although having said that, so are the, the Blairite faction, so so that's not exactly um, totally distinct. And, and things like um, a, a very strong interventionist welfare state, 
um, all of those things would put me on the left of the party. Okay, and Jeremy? Well, I mean, I would say that sort of institutionally, traditionally, I was on the soft left. And for a long time, I was because I, I, was, I was I was a member of Compass. You know, I sort of considered myself a kinekai in the late 80s uh, when I was, um, you know, when I was a teenager. But I was always kind of on, I would say, I was always on the kind of left of the soft left, as it were. And and now I, I, I just think the distinction, now I, think, I completely agree with Luke's topology and, and history, but I think really just over the past couple of years it's been clear that the kind of boundary between that left of the soft left and the kind of benite hard left is has pretty much dissolved you know as uh, you know a lot of support for a lot of corbyn support is people like me who would have voted for ed Miliband, for example who now you know who, who just think that project that that tradition is pretty much finished um and that current was all, but that current, what I would call the left of the soft left I, I realize this is complicating things a bit but that left was always characterized by a position which was try, which was sort of strategic in its in its understanding of parliamentary politics and sort of sympathetic to a kind of centrist agenda in terms of parliamentary politics, but was also always interested in extra parliamentary politics and the idea of movement politics and kind of community and street activism as complementary to that. So it was always fairly complicated, and and that that strand of it, I think, was always kind of. I think there are fairly contingent historical reasons why that strand of it wasn't allied to the sort of Benite hard left. Um, so I think in some ways it's not that much of a shift in the position for it now to be allied to it. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think that's kind of interesting because it's all, it, almost like the, the soft left has sort of dissolved into component bits because the, the, obviously I'm looking at things from a perspective of the other end of the party, what I had been seeing is loads of people that I had assumed were coming from a different place to me and now backing the same leadership candidate. And actually, I'm backing Owen Smith, who I perceive to be on the left of the soft left <laughs> as a leadership candidate. And, and the other choice was Angela Eagle, who I always thought, yeah, I didn't even know that Angela Eagle supported Trident or that Maria Eagle supported Trident until last September when they, it suddenly turned out that I agreed with them on things. So I just presumed culturally they, they were from somewhere out in a different bit of the party to me. And you suddenly find yourself kind of allied with people like Peter Hayne or Tom, Tom Copley from the London Assembly, who three years ago I was debating against him at local Labour parties was him as the left person. And now he seems to be saying exactly the, 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 the same stuff as me. So it's become a lot more... Um, in terms of the discourse on social media and stuff, it's become a lot more uh, having to choose one option or, or another. I don't think that's sustainable or healthy, really. At some point in the future, when there isn't a leadership election on, people will take start to take more nuanced positions. At some point in the next 50 years when there isn't a leadership election. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I mean, in terms of where I come from, um, when I... Um, First joined the party, I would have identified as a Kinnikite. Um, and um, then you kind of, as you get more involved, you get to meet different sorts of people. And the tradition that I would identify with nowadays is the kind of tradition, is, is, is like the, the, the old right or the old moderate set of people because um, I've got, views that were people in momentum would probably find quite obnoxious in terms of where I stand on defence or security policy. I'm very sort of passionate about defence and the relationship with America. Um, there are people that kind of share that passion but are probably very uncomfortable about Iraq. Uh, I, th I think it's, it's, I'm probably in a minority in, 
in terms of my a very small minority in terms of my views on, on Iraq now, whether that's on the right or the left of the party. Um, but what differentiates the kind of traditional moderates from the more Blairite ones is a an affection for the trade unions. So like a kind of deep engage. In fact, a lot of our key people would have come out of working for trade unions or being heavily involved in trade unions. A uh, lot of involvement in uh, usually in in municipal life in local governments. Um, usually more provincial than London-based, though I was in Hackney, so I'm exception to that rule. And quite traditional in terms of social and economic policy. So basically, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned social democrat that wants, in terms of internal policies, I want Britain to look like Sweden or like Sweden did in its, in its heyday. I'm not really into like marketization of, in fact, I'm massively opposed to and will argue against marketization of public services and some of those things that were associated with the tail end of the, uh, of the Blair um, era. Um, but I kind of have no problem working with people that would self-describe as Blairite. We'll kind of have little arguments and stuff. Mm. But um, So you guys have kind of outlined um, some of the ideas that characterise the factions that you're in. Um, but I think what's difficult for a new member to understand is what factions actually do as well because I think that um, if you watch the media coverage um, there seems to be two big factions like the Blairites and the Corbynites like that seems to be the battle that you kind of hear about all the time and my perspective is like the Blairites always sound like this secret cabal who kind of you know are meeting up and organising to do certain things and the Corbynites are kind of doing the same thing but in a bigger like more protesty movement way um, what what is what do factions do apart from having a shared set of ideas do they meet up and have these meetings about things they want to get done in the Labour Party um, and what what has been in a faction meant that you have actually done if you know what I mean as part of those factions um, well yeah they I mean that really varies from case to case and from situation to situation and I mean the most organized type of factionalizing involves actually organizing at various uh, whatever level you're operating at whether it's local politics or national politics or in student politics or the unions um actually organizing actually caucusing as it's um you know i think it says something about actually luke is completely right that there's kind of the traditional distaste and a kind of disavowal of the existence of factional politics in british politics because caucusing is where most people don't know is in like in american politics even in american politics everybody knows what caucusing means it's when your faction gets together and tries to say it's factional agenda and then works out a plan for how it's going to implement that agenda within the wider organization so on the most organized level um uh, you know, factions will actually get together. They will work out how they are going to try to, for example, secure their agenda in their local Labour Party, how they're going to get their position, how, how they're going to organise slates for things like the National Executive Committee or for local uh, committees like the General Committee of the Constituency Party. On the other hand, faction, you know, factions can be much less much looser than that. I mean, so for example, I mean, the soft left, for example, hasn't actually had an organisation that did that for a very long time, not really, not really since the emergence of New Labour and Compass sort of toyed with the idea that it, when Compass first emerged, it was a sort of attempt to reconvene the soft left, but it never got to the point of, for example, organising local caucuses, organising national slates. It, it did it, a little bit... Um, it did get to the point of, of of officially nominating and supporting Ed Miliband, for example, as but it but it wasn't an affiliated part of the party, so he couldn't do that. Um, 
I think, you know, in some ways, I would say the ideal typical example of a faction in, in the party right now is probably Labour First. Uh, I, I don't say that as it, uh, in any kind of insulting way. So maybe Luke can talk a bit about what Labour First does. Yeah. So um, as, as the person secretary of Labour First, I mean, we, we would have an aspiration that... Um, purely for reactive reasons, because there are local momentum groups, we think we've probably got to start organising at that at that kind of local level to give uh, people a kind of space where they can discuss where they think the party's going and agree on you know, who, what needs to be done at a local level. That really doesn't exist outside of a handful of places. I think there's about four places in the, in the entire country where... People have that kind of th those th those kind of meetings, so we look shambolically disorganised compared to momentum. And then you, you may have a fantasy about how organised momentum is. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure um, there's more than. Well, that I think it, 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 vary, it varies from from yeah, it from place to place. Uh, so the sort of stuff that we we do do is we come up with a list of names uh, for any na nationwide ballots. So for the national executive committee, we sit down with progress. Uh, I don't think it's a huge secret that when Tony Blair was or Gordon Brown was leader, we would have sat down with the leader's office as well and worked out who were the six people that we wanted to back. And, um, and presumably Jeremy sits, Jeremy's political secretary sits down with momentum and discusses that. Um, and similarly for the National Policy Forum, below that level, um, it's a lot less formalised than that. I mean, most people would be horrified if you said to them, here's a Labour First line or whatever at a local meeting. What it, what it, The way I've observed that historically it tends to operate is you have a small number of people, often just one on each side, or maybe one on one side and no one on the other side in each constituency party. You actually know what's going on at a national level, that they're highly involved in this stuff. They're on all the email lists. They follow all the right websites and stuff. And, the, and that, that will be the guy. So in Hackney North, it used to be me on one side and a man called Graham Bash on, on the left. And we would be the ones that would stand up and say, I suggest we nominate these six candidates or I suggest we support this motion or I propose person X for membership secretary. And it would really just be people wouldn't see themselves as I am a member of the left or I am a member of the, the the moderate side, they would just go, well, I kind of trust Luke's judgment more than Graham's or Graham's more than more than Luke's. Um, and, it, and it worked kind of like that because most people, they don't recognise the names off the the NEC ballot or whatever, unless it, when Ken Livingston was standing, it was obviously different. But the name recognition of those of us that run for that is, is yeah, we're not household names in our own households. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Like when I, I got in, because I'm a, um, a Corbyn supporter and part of Momentum, and I just got an email saying, these are the people you should vote for, for the NEC. And I just did it because that was, I thought that that was like part of what was happening. Um, so I definitely have recognised that process having been part of like the party myself. Um, but thinking about um, Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith in some senses, um, how did Jeremy Corbyn get nominated and then and now has become the leader of the party? Is that as a result of a well-organised faction? No. Um, <laughs> I we, This might be where we disagree, like the panellists, um, because I think that my, my take on how Jeremy got elected, well, and won, was that um, basically there was a sense in the party that the left should be represented and it was a bit of a... A kind of patronizing like let's give them their 
kind of five minutes sort of attitude. And I think there was also a sense um, that like let him stand and then he'll be crushed and then it'll silence the left once and for all. I think Luke actually yeah. said that. I, th- I thought that was I thought that was going to happen. I argued in favour of Jeremy being on the ballot paper because I really thought the only in- impact would be um, in terms of how it would re- affect the relative first preference votes of the different moderate candidates. Um, I had had absolutely no idea that there was this constituency of opinion that would really love him out in the country. Um, I just didn't think that there were that uh, many people in the UK that had those views. So, uh, you know, good good for him that he's gone and found them, but it was a big shock to me. I will say though, I I was in I was in the same boat as Luke. I mean, obviously, I, not that I said let's let's put him up so we can crush the left. Like that was that wasn't my uh, my view. But I did think that he would be annihilated. And one of the reasons why initially I was supportive of his um, candidacy and support supported um, efforts to get him to win was because I wanted the left to end in third place. Because I thought if they end, if we end, if we don't come last then at least it will show that there is left-wing opinion in the party and we can't be ignored. And that was what I was aiming for. And it really did blindside me as much as it blindsided everybody else. And I, and my feeling about why Jeremy got elected wasn't because the left was such a strong and well-organised faction, because believe me, as someone who's been to 10,000 left rallies on the Labour Party with the same 20 people at them every time, it's not. Um, I think that actually the Labour membership is much, much further to the left, to the left than I think any of us realized and in fact um over 50 percent of existing labor members voted for corbyn it wasn't his support what didn't come from the outside it came from within existing members also because the membership had shifted in terms of its makeup under Miliband as well it became more left-wing and younger um so i think my take on what happened was that the left had been very very marginalized for a very very long time in the party and had kind of done what it was told to do by voting in Ed Miliband, someone who was soft left and could appear electable. And then that election was lost. And there was this kind of feeling where amongst Corbyn supporters that I spoke to, which ran into their hundreds by the end of the leadership campaign, because I wrote about it so much, there was this sort of feeling of, well, we voted for the candidate that you told us to vote for, and we've still got a Tory government. So now we're just going to vote for someone who um, who basically has principles that, that we share and also I think the other thing to remember about the leadership election is that the other three candidates their campaigns were really abysmal I say that as someone who went to so many of their rallies and I originally had decided to vote for Andy Burnham because of the reasons I just mentioned about Corbyn um and and then changed my mind later when I thought I better support the left candidate but originally I wasn't really like very sort of enthusiastic about Jeremy but then the the uh, leadership campaigns from the other three candidates were just so empty and meaningless. They really didn't feel like there was much to vote for. And I think that was another reason why Corbyn ended up winning. I, I think it was a kind of tinderbox situation, a big wave, something that came out of the blue. It definitely wasn't the result of an organised faction. The left has been very disorganised in the Labour Party for a very long time. And has that changed now as a result of um, Jeremy being the leader? Because you've got momentum now um, and they obviously are organising within the Labour Party. So are they are they a new faction that's come out that is now in battle with the, these kind of older factions? Is that what's happening with, with the kind of crisis that's happening right now? That's largely what's happened. I mean, one of the things that's happened is, the, I mean, 
there is a there was a kind of existing hard left Benite fac- faction which has provided a lot of the infrastructure for momentum locally and nationally. That's the LRC, the Labour Representation Committee, which is, is John McDonald's political base. And the party is organised around the hard left magazine Labour briefing. And they sort of took it up, although it, it wouldn't... I, th- I completely agree with what everybody said about how this happened. They were not really involved. They were barely involved at all in organising his leadership campaign. They were just the only people around who were kind of even... who had a kind of network who were able to pick up any of the kind of organisational slack yeah as the campaign developed so that has happened so they um but yeah so momentum yeah momentum has um is what you have just described although i mean momentum i mean momentum is partly an ongoing attempt to answer the question well what do we do with these like hundreds of thousands of people who who, who suddenly emerged out of sort of out of outer political inactivity in order to support his jeremy's campaign for the leadership and i would say it's probably too it would be going too far to say that it even momentum itself is exactly sure like what what the answer to that question is it is an ongoing attempt to answer the question um and it hasn't really had time to do anything much apart from you know organize a round of rallies to support jeremy in 2015 and another round now so um yeah, but but insofar as it is organising locally, I mean, what Luke said is accurate. I mean, it is a, you know, it is also organising in much the same way as traditional Labour factions do. It organised the slave in the NEC, etc. But but I would say, even, but even momentum has been largely reactive so far. Largely, it's been a reaction to the fact that you know, indeed this this constituency of opinion has emerged, which I think. Um, I mean, like everyone, I was I was amazed and shocked by by, by Jeremy getting the leadership. But I wasn't so amazed by the, that body of opinion existing because it's something as a sort of cultural studies uh, teacher of cultural studies. One thing I do almost every year is read over the British Social Attitude Surveys, and I've all, I, and I've been saying to people for years: if you study the British Social Attitude Surveys, it was pretty clear that about twenty to twenty to twenty five percent of the population will give a basically Marxist answer to most questions about their beliefs about most about how the world works. And so, and since the mid eighties, that body of opinion had largely acquiesced to the idea that it couldn't be represented politically, that it would be futile to try to seek political representation. It had to accept the leadership of the Labour right in order to have to secure any kind of political or electoral success, and that the, you know the disappointments with Blairism. Uh, for just the reasons Luke set out, actually, the, the, the marketisation of public services in particular, I think even more than Iraq, and then the failure of a Miliband strategy meant that that, you know, that body of opinion kind of re-emerged very, very quickly as the kind of basis for you know, momentum and for, for Jeremy's leadership. But I think, yeah, I think momentum, um, but, uh, but, moment, but I would say, you know, momentum, as I say, is a sort of work in progress and there is, you know, and it is not entirely clear in its own mind collectively of what, you know, well, what is the answer to the question? Yeah, well, what, what are we supposed to do with these hundreds of thousands of people who, who have emerged quite quickly into a degree, some degree of political activity who have just been quite dormant for a generation? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So if that's Jeremy Corbyn, then um, where does Owen Smith factor into all of this? Um, Because kind of following it um, in the media, it looked like it was Blairites who um, instigated the coup and then obviously got a large swathe of support from the Labour Party generally. Then Owen Smith appeared and he's kind of presenting himself as this um, more acceptable face of kind of like left-wing politics. So it hasn't been clear how factions have been kind of operating in this particular time, given who started the coup, but now who's the candidate. So um, it, maybe just start with the coup itself. That Was that the that was that was the process of the Blairite right. saying, right, we're going to get organised now, he needs to go and let's make this happen? I, I think there are three different sets of people in the PLP um, who kind of map across to the, 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 the factions in the country that, or currents in the country we were talking about who had different attitudes to Corbyn. So the first set was the people that you could accurately historically describe as Blairite um, who decided not to serve immediately in September. So starting with Jamie Reid during uh, Corbyn's speech and then uh, Chukaramuna, though he's someone that actually came out of the soft left, but by by 2015 is a kind of uh, Blairite, Blairite character, uh, uh, Liz Kendall, etc., who 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 just said uh, we're not interested in giving credibility to this guy's leader. We're not going to take front bench officers. So so there was a first set of people. And they actually took some of the right wing of the Brownites with them as well. So Yvette Cooper and Rachel Reeves from the start decided they weren't going to serve. Though in Rachel's case, it's a bit more ambiguous because she was going on maternity leave. So I'm not quite sure how much of it was personal and how much of it was uh, political. Then you had a set of people basically organised by kind of Tom Watson and, and Andy Burnham, who you could broadly say were kind of Brownites, uh, or kind of old right or something like that, or the right wing of the soft left, who um, decided they were going to try and make it work. They probably, I mean, I talked to these people. I don't think that they thought that Jeremy Corbyn was going to make it to the general election, but they just kind of thought you kind of have to accept that he just got a big mandate. The Labour Party's got a motor along. Someone's got to provide a front bench for this guy. We'll try and work with him. And they tried to do a, a, a deal where they said, you know, give front bench jobs to some of the guys that are aligned with us. Uh, don't touch our policy red lines around, you know, particularly around Trident. Um, and But you can run with all the anti-austerity stuff. We accept that you've got a mandate to run with anti-austerity and we'll sing along with that. But that fell apart very quickly when it came to the, the, the Syria question was the first break point. And then the sacking of Michael Duggar in the, the reshuffle that happened just after the new year, um, that dist- that annoyed um, 
a set of MPs that really like Michael that would drink with him or go to the tea room with him or whatever. Uh, they were like, okay, he got rid of our mate. We, we're not interested anymore. Uh, but they stayed in for uh, for for quite a long time. I think that, that those people were not the, the, the Blairite set of people wanted to wanted a contest against Jeremy anyway. Uh, the old right people would have had a division about whether to carry on for another couple of years and see how it all panned out and basically be pragmatic about it. And then you had a kind of soft left set of people who in policy terms don't actually have that much problem with Jeremy Corbyn at all. So Owen Smith himself, Lisa Nandy, um, Lillian Greenwood, Fangam Debonair, uh, Chiyanwara, you could go for a whole list of people who it's very difficult to see where, in policy terms where they would disagree with, with Jeremy. Um, but they're sort of more pragmatic in terms of do they need to compromise a bit to win elections? And then their reason, for their break point was over what they perceived to be competence issues in terms of the way that he had managed them as people and the way in which he managed the European referendum campaign. So I don't think those people were necessarily going to do anything had the, if the referendum had gone the other way. Um, I think then nothing would have happened and probably nothing would have happened next year because there's not really an important set of council elections next year in the way that there was uh, this year. And, and the, the, the referendum provided a trigger point for some people that had always wanted, um, you could call it a coup, contest, whatever you want to call it, and then other people that didn't really want one because they wanted a quiet life, but it provoked them into, into going for one. So you sort of answered really about Owen Smith that he's from the soft left, that actually like on policy positions, he kind of would come into this soft left set of ideas. Um, so what does he, what does, what's, what is his faction then? Um, it's this big nebulous group um, and who's supporting him and what are they doing to sort of organise around supporting Owen Smith to be the candidate? Um, I would put Owen Smith somewhere in the region of Ed Miliband in terms of his um, politics. Um, kind of, you know, like, he he's sort of broadly in favour of immigration, but will occasionally say things that he shouldn't about immigration to appeal to voters. You know, he sort of um, is in favour of welfare state, but again, will say things that suggest that he isn't because of it, it, will, it will appeal to voters, you know. And so I would put him in that, in that category, um, that's where he sits. I think that he's tacking a lot to the left at the moment. He's trying because I think he recognises that um, that that's what the selector, the Labour selector, want. Um, I think that the Blairite faction, which is actually quite small, but it's just very vocal. That's why it appears big, is because it's very vocal and it has a lot of contact in the lobby. So that's why often when you get uh, anonymous briefings slagging off Jeremy Corbyn, it's the Blairite faction doing it because they they've got contacts with the lobby journalists and so they appear bigger than they are um I think they but I do think they have recognized that they can't put up a Blairite candidate because um they, they just look look what happened to Liz Kendall it just won't work so I think they've reluctantly coalesced around Owen Smith so I think but I think basically Owen Smith's support is ev everyone and anyone who wants Jeremy out at this point and he he is he's the not Jeremy candidate is how I would describe him and I think that's why he'll he'll lose as well and I just and I just want to say as well um what Luke said then about um the kind of timeline of the coup and the different factions I think one of the biggest mistakes that um 
Corbyn supporters make when discussing the coup with me is they um, say that, you know, it's a coup that's been orchestrated by the PLP who've always hated Jeremy and always want him out. And it's a coup is Blairites versus Corbynites. And so you'd think that someone like me would listen to uh, Luke's version of events and say it's inaccurate. But actually, I think it's from what I understand from having spoken to a lot of different MPs and having followed the thing very closely, actually, that's a very accurate description of of what's happened. And I think that... Um, I think that we really need to stop talking about the PLP versus Jeremy and the Blairites versus the Corbynites because actually things are much more complicated in the Labour Party than that. So you've outlined the different factions, um, but as a new member, it's not clear whether this is um, as a result of this moment or whether historically there's always been these faction fights uh, within the Labour Party. Um, So could you explain a little bit about the history of these factions, whether the factions are inevitable part of been in the Labour Party? Okay, I don't think they're an inevitable part of life at the grassroots level in the Labour Party. I think there are many, many constituencies that have managed for years and years and years often because they're, they're not big enough to sustain factions. I mean, if you're to not really have internal factionalization, it tends to just be like, there's only just enough of us to deliver all the leaflets. So uh, we disagree about things, but we're not, uh, yeah, there aren't, there aren't enough people to contest internal elections at many lower levels of, of, of the Labour Party. And you've got enough trouble on your hand fighting the Tories without fighting each other. So it's tended to be an inner urban thing from particularly from London, but Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham as well, that have always had factional activity and and, and then a national level thing that people that don't look that factional can turn up at party conference and feel that they're um, aligned with with something. Um, So it's not inevitable that you have to feel, I've got to be part of one thing or the other. You can just be happy being Labour and there will be, there are a lot of the time things are a lot calmer. Um, I think it, the other aspect, though, is there's an extent to which this is, this is the most exciting or dramatic of a series of these kind of flashpoints. That if you look back through Labour Party history, every time Labour has lost office in 1931, in 1951, in 1970, in 1979... Um, the party has turned in on itself. There's been condemnation of the record of the previous government, a kind of allegation of betrayal or sellout by the by the the, 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 the people at the top, and um, a kind of grassroots insurrection saying we could have held on to power, we could have achieved more if we'd been more socialist. Ed Miliband kind of managed to fudge that and stop it happening for, for five years by perhaps being part of that move about going the, the whole hog. Uh, and and the fact that he put it off has meant that it's it's bigger now that it has happened. But it's basically the repetition of of a pattern, and they're very old uh, kind of divisions and stuff. Like some constituencies, you can look back through history, and they would have been nominating the same uh, sides, NEC candidates, back to the nineteen fifties or or whatever. Others uh, change change position, but there are people. Uh, around, I've sat down and had a cup of tea with Lord Donoghue, who was ha- head of policy for Harold Wilson, and he told me, he said, oh, it's very interesting you're running Labour First. I ran the campaign for democratic socialism in the early 1960s. Let me tell you about the card index that I had to map who the delegates were at every constituency around the country. And it was basically telling me how he had done my hobby or the job that I do unpaid uh, outside of work. 
60 years ago and it wasn't massively different other than the the, the technology uh, has changed but the important thing is that people can the, the 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 ideological strands and factions can move around the people and the people can move so Roy Hattersley, for instance, has basically said the same things all his political life. They put him on the right of the Labour Party when Foote was leader, but they put him on the left of the Labour Party when Blair was leader. Uh, Tony Benn moved from the Gateskite right to the left just because he, he read a bit of Marx one Christmas in <laughs> 1970, if you read his biography. A lot of people who were... Some Benite people were being really consistent, like John Landsman or Pete Wilsman, are the same people that were organising in the early 80s and now involved in organising Momentum. But loads of others of them were very red in tooth and claw, hard left people like Patricia Hewitt in the early 1980s, doing stirring speeches at conference, attacking the leadership. They end up being Blairite cabinet ministers 20 years later because people, people develop politically. Um, I'm not saying they all develop rightwards either. Some people move to the left. Things, in my experience, things are normally much calmer in the Labour Party than this. And there are there are always debates and always arguments and there are always factions, but things are much calmer than this. And actually, it isn't the case that, you know, you go to some event, Labour Party event like conference and, you know, you see if you're on the left, you see a Blairite and you, you hate each other. Actually, um, people who are around the Labour Party and have been for years have got friends from all across different factions and they get on pretty well and they, you know, find shared issues and common issues to talk about and I actually think um what this has done this this uh coup this fight has basically caused the, the collapse of the soft left within the party and I think that's really bad news for the Labour Party because the soft left has always been the anchor of the party it's been the thing that holds it together and what actually you've found now is because it seems like a battle between like it's being it's being portrayed as a battle between Blairites and Corbynites. The soft left has been kind of like the parting of the Red Sea, pardon the pun, and they, people have just joined aside, and the soft left is no longer there. So it means that there's no kind of centre holding the party together, and I think that's why it's in such a difficult state at the moment. And I think once this is all over, and please God, let it be over. Um, I think that there needs to be, in order to keep the party together and to keep it working, there needs to be some kind of reconciliation about how we bring that to back together, because otherwise I think the Labour Party will be in serious trouble. So on that basis, um, and given the complicated set of forces, uh, how likely do you think a split is going to be coming up in the Labour Party, Jeremy? Um, I probably think a split is more likely than they think it is. I mean, partly than Ellie and Luke think it is, probably. Um, it may, there, are reasons, there are obvious reasons it may not happen. But I think um, I think it's very difficult to see how we go, how we go back after the vote of no confidence. I mean, the, 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 I mean, a large number of the PLP really absolutely assumed that Jeremy would resign after that, and he hasn't. And that, creates an unpre that does create an unprecedented situation. Um, so I think... Uh, I, I think the, the I'm going to say what I think the motivations for a split um, would be is that it, if the split can take the majority of the parliamentary Labour Party with it, they will become the official opposition. They'll be able to track, attract quite high levels of funding. They'll have high levels of media support. And I think, although I, I completely agree that the Blairites are a kind of minority, but I think they're a minority that, as we've described at different points in their history, have succeeded in hegemonising most of the soft left. They suggested in persuading most of the soft left to go with them, uh, even if it was somewhere they didn't really want to go. And I don't see much evidence of that really having changed 
recently. So I think, um, I think um, it is quite. I think it is quite plausible that there could be a split because I think the temp- the, re- the temptations for it to be were significant. I think the anger from the grassroots at the MPs is, is really serious now, and a lot of them are going to face the threat of deselection, um, even if uh, momentum and Jeremy's leadership don't advocate for that, uh, which they probably won't. So I think. It, I, I find it quite hard to imagine that, that the PLP are in large numbers. Large numbers of, of existing PLP members are just going to sit there waiting, you know, waiting to get deselected. I mean, obviously, large numbers of them won't. I mean, obviously, there will be there'll be different motivations from within different groups. And I think the old right, I'm sure, won't split or won't want to split. And I think partly because here we would have some analytical differences. I mean, the, the, the account Luke's given, which is, is a totally plausible account, I mean, it is the kind of new right, is the old rights view of history, and then there's good evidence for supporting it, which is that the, these things are sort of cyclical, that what's going now or now is a response to a Labour defeat, and that inevitably we go through these periods when the left, there's a left resurgence, and yeah, the, the old right, I think, is, is you know, on good basis, with a good basis, has seen its historic mission as kind of, you know, holding the fort and holding the line until the party comes to its senses and it can win an election again uh, and my own view would be there's a lot of truth to that but I also think that part of what's going on is a, is a set of responses to a much deeper crisis of parliamentary democracy in Britain the fact that it simply cannot represent the views of a highly complex society in the way that it once might have been able to and the fact that I think the, I think the problem for the soft left is that it's not just committed to a particular program, it's also historically committed to a particular strategy. And that strategy has been attempted multiple times now and has never, ever succeeded. Like it, it's this, the strategy of attaching a relatively progressive social democratic program to a sort of respectable leader, like who presented himself as a moderate, it was tried by Kinnock, it was tried by Miliband, it was tried to a large extent by Brown, in 20, and it just doesn't work. Um, and I think the, the differences in, in orientation between um, around the question of well, what is the political strategy in response to that you know, um, are, are so great that I find it quite hard to see. I find it quite hard to see the party um, staying together. There are all kinds of reasons, which I'm sure we're about to hear, like why it, why it might stay together, why there might not be a split. But I, I tend to think that, broadly speaking, most people, most commentary at the moment is saying, of course there won't be a split, there can't be a split, all the, all the, all the reasons for it against it are so obvious. But my response to that, that tends to be, it, unless, if you are someone who, who predicted Jeremy Corbyn would be leader of the Labour Party two years ago, then you have the authority to say, you know what's going to happen and that some, nothing else is going to change now. I would say, given that none of us predicted that, none of us really know what the hell is going on. And I would say the imminent logic of the processes which led to the election of Jeremy Corbyn seems to me to lead to a place where it's very hard to imagine the Labour Party existing in its current form. That, despite the fact that as a lifelong Labour member, I hope we can. I hope we can hold the Labour Party together. I hope it doesn't split. So, Ellie, do you have a more uh, positive view of what might happen next? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, actually, I do. I think that's... I'm not sure whether I agree with that, but I think it's a very um, plausible analysis of what might happen. I suppose the reason why I, I, if you'd have asked me two months ago, I would have said that a split was definitely going to happen. No question. Um, Stephen Bush, who is a Blairite also would have agreed, agreed with me about that on that point. Then I don't know what he thinks now, but I, I so I think. Now he says there isn't going to be a split. Oh, right. Okay. He said to me a week ago. So yeah, like a couple of months ago, it really felt like there was one coming. Now everybody seems to have gone off that idea, you know, and I think the first past the post electoral system means that, and a lot of polling shows that basically a split would kind of destroy 
both sides really um so it's sort of being being assumed now that no one's going to be that stupid but i think what jeremy was saying there about the vote of no confidence is true the problem that the the mp's face now is that um until the next election until jeremy corbyn isn't leader anymore the tories and the media will just keep drumming home the fact that you know you don't have confidence in this guy how can the electorate and i think they'll find that quite unbearable um i don't really know how the Labour Party is supposed to function on an administrative and organisational level after the vote of, after such a massive vote of no confidence that even goes down to a local level, like hundreds of councillors have also declared no confidence in Corbyn. So I don't really, it's not so much about ideals as, as much as it is about, for me, about how it actually fun can function as an organisation in that environment. I don't really know how that's possible. So I think a split is is not not definite but i don't think it's i don't think anybody should be complacent about it um i think the alternative if there isn't a split which is the small but um enthusiastic and vocal blairite faction um will continue to i think that if there isn't a split they will try to run the party into the ground and disrupt the party to the extent that um people will eventually like they're hoping that the it will just fizzle out this kind of enthusiasm. I think that what that what they would hope is that um, they will make the party so dysfunctional that it will continue to lose and lose and lose. And you might have this kind of hard rump of leftists who will stay loyal to Jeremy, but actually the majority of people just don't like constant defeats and they'll just sort of give up. So I think that if there isn't a split, that's what's going to happen. I, I think it's really not in the Labour Party's best interests to split at all. Um, I think the idea of a progressive alliance with other parties is very interesting, but I I don't think the left will do very well without a Labour Party in general. So I don't think anybody should be complacent about that. And finally, Luke, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, I, I I don't think there's any immediate prospect of, uh, of, a, of a split. I think things will get worse before they get better in terms of the some of the internal dynamics in the... Um, in the party, because this is just, it's an insoluble question. Uh, a, a leader that doesn't have the confidence of uh, of his MPs, but they can't yet find uh, the, the the winning formula uh, to win in the country. I, th I, 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 I think the way they, that the, the my guys will eventually win back the leadership will be when they learn to recruit, because the, the bit where I kind of disagree with Jeremy is I, I actually think there's a, a lot more people out there on the centre-left that are basically moderate and are not party members who could be attracted to sign up and be registered supporters or members with the, with the right leadership candidate who, who inspired them. I don't know who that person is at the moment. I think for the, um, the, the vast majority of people on the right wing of the party look at what happened in history with the SDP and just think I'm I'm not going there. Uh, that even if they want, you know, I personally wouldn't want to. If there was like a a new social democratic party that believed in all the things I believe in, this will sound really perverse, but it's how tribal. I, you know, I, I'm a fourth generation Labour guy. My great grandparents helped set up the Labour Party in 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 North Kent. I would rather be in a 10% minority in a party led by Jeremy Corbyn being like the guy that's a bit annoying that keeps saying, why don't we go back to what we were, than be in the on the national executive or 
general secretary or something of some breakaway that wasn't called Labour. I couldn't go home to my mum and dad and tell them that I wasn't in the Labour Party. I'm not going to do that to them. Um, and, uh, I mean, uh, 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 that's the irrational aspect. The rational aspect is uh, the polling that YouGov did that, that um, as Ellie said, shows uh, that a breakaway on either side would be uh, catastrophic because of the tribal loyalty of lots of voters like me and my mum and dad. So there are so many people still, even though we have a less um, tribally class-aligned society that just will vote for whoever is the Labour candidate, um, that the a left breakaway would only get 12 or 13% and the party called Labour would get 20 And the same... Um, with, if there was a right breakaway, it would get twelve or thirteen percent, and the party that was still called Labour would 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 get twenty. I suspect that although both are not very probable, there is more chance in the medium term of a left breakaway, because if you are a John McDonnell or a Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the idea of being um, in a party that gets ten percent of the vote and maybe several dozen MPs sounds really quite impressive compared to what was the size of the campaign group. Whereas for people that are used to aspire to government and being a big hegemonic party on 40% or whatever, it, it, sounds, uh, it, it sounds absolutely um, catastrophic. But they're clearly they're not going to do that at the moment while they're um, in, in a position um, to, to win. So uh, I mean, I'd end with what uh, I think it was... Um, was it Frank Chappell, who was the Electricians Union leader, said to Shirley Williams, who was one of the founders of the SDP, and he said, um, Shirley, if you think you've got the political strength and resources uh, to create a totally new centre-left uh, party, then you also have the ability to regain control of the Labour Party. And they said, and if you haven't got the political strength and resources to regain uh, control of the Labour Party, you certainly won't have the ability to set up anything new that lasts long term. And he was right, because the SDP ended up, you know, with the tragedy of people like Vince Cable that had been Labour special advisors sat in a Tory cabinet. That's mm. that's not how I'm going to end my political activism. Okay, so um, we've covered a very, very broad range of um, history and ideas of the Labour Party, and we will have more of a chance to go into those in some of the um, later podcasts, um, but we have reached the end of our time now, so thank you all very much for a fascinating discussion. Um, I know that all of you are quite active online, so um, could you just let us know where we can follow more of your um, ideas and things like that? Jeremy? Uh, JeremyGilbert.org Thank you, Ellie. Um, I tweet as Miss Ellie May, but please do not argue with me about Jeremy Corbyn on Twitter. <laughs> I tweet as at Luke Akehurst, and uh, I have a column that usually comes out on a Tuesday or sometimes a Wednesday morning at, at, at Labour List. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so Jeremy and I will be back next month. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe for free on iTunes or in the podcast app of your choice to get new episodes. Just search for Beginner's Guide to the Labour Party. If you want to help the podcast and help other people discover the show, please do leave us a rating on iTunes. Uh, my name is Holly Rigby. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Yo, sometimes I have to laugh to stop me from crying Cosmetically the block change, but there's still these violence The war on drugs still going on Gonna still pump this strong money still ACAST powers the world's best podcasts Here's a show that we recommend 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.